Happy Manier, everybody. Oh, here we go. Hey, you see? I mean, I feel safe saying Manier. This is a safe play for the Maniers because last week we asked you yay or nay to saying Friay, and 51% of you said yay to the Friay, a slim, slim majority, but a majority nonetheless. There's actually going to be a lot of yay this week. Big yay this week. Big yay this week. Saturday yay, election day. Sun yay, ABs v Ireland. Big old yays all round. Yay, so many yays. Let's hope it stays that way, yay. <laughs> so little time. We better get cracking. Kia ora, this is Newsable. I'm Jess. And I'm Imogen and this is what's worth talking about. The National Party publicly declared it would work with Winston Peters but now seems to be doing everything it can to quash that idea. So do those coalition talks stand a chance? The Middle East is in crisis. Are we barreling towards another major conflict? Doing business in Cricketman, India. Why it helps if you know a black cap or three. And the trip to a buffet that left one Welsh pub customer fuming to be going home empty-handed. Very good story and we've got all that coming up in a moment here on Newsable. Newsable takes time and resources to produce. Please support our mahi and visit stuff.co.nz slash support. As we head into the final week of the election campaign, poll after poll after poll puts Winston Peters in the driving seat, the kingmaker once again. But National's campaign chair Chris Bishop has now thrown a new spanner in the works, suggesting there's a growing possibility that if National can't do a deal with New Zealand First and act, we could be forced to endure a second election, God forbid. Is that all pre-election bluster or is it a real possibility? Well, one man who has been through more than his fair share of coalition negotiations is former leader of United Future Peter Dunn, who was involved in five coalitions. Peter, kia ora. Kia ora. Do you think we could end up with a hung parliament after October 14? Could we be headed for a second election? A second election is always an option, but I think it would be a very brave call to immediately move down that path because the thing about MMP elections, particularly for smaller parties, is you lose if you're seen to be the problem. Now, if the Nats got into a position where they felt they couldn't form a government but with a larger single party and were going to seek a second election... They'd have to frame it somehow that they weren't the problem, that either ACT or New Zealand First was, and so that the electorate could then deal to them accordingly. That's going to be a pretty difficult exercise, I would have thought. I don't think this ever happened to you in United Future, Peter, but how do you go into coalition talks with someone who said that they don't want to work with you? I mean, Christopher Luxon, he said he would work with Winston. Now he's repeatedly said he doesn't really want to. How does that How does that work when you then have to pick up the phone to them on October 15th and say, hey, yeah, well, do you want to I, do a deal? I, I puzzle about that because one of the assumptions that I've always had in any coalition talks is there's got to be goodwill on both sides. There's got to be a sense that uh, both sides actually want to talk and both sides want to explore whether a deal is possible. If you start from the position that I'm only talking to you because there's no one else that will and I'm desperate, it's hardly a good faith basis on which to proceed. Having said that, it's not impossible. I can remember, I'm not going to say with which party, but we had a situation at one point where 
We weren't too fussed about whether we reached an agreement or not, but I was determined that they were going to be the ones that said no rather than me. So you can manipulate those situations to your advantage, but there's got to be goodwill and there's got to be trust if you're going to make any progress. How do you imagine these coalition talks are going to go? Uh, as Jess mentioned, you know, Chris Luxon has said he will work with Winston Peters, but he doesn't want to work with Winston Peters. So you don't imagine charm offensive playing such a huge role this time, right? No, they'll be very formal if they take place at all. And that raises another issue. It was always my view in practice that the larger party, in other words, the one that was going to be leading the government, needed to kick off the talks by saying, we need to talk to you about whether you can work with us and whether we can form a government arrangement, etc. New Zealand First's approach has always been to say, well, we're actually going to decide who we talk to and when we talk to. And that immediately puts them in the box seat in a way. And I would have thought if I was Christopher Luxon, I'd be wanting to keep this very tightly controlled and say, look, we've got to deal with acts looming. Are you guys in or out on that basis? Rather than to go in and say, right, let's all talk and see what we can agree on because of that situation, New Zealand First will just take control and the whole thing will become quite chaotic. Would a second election really, if that does come to pass, would that really call into question the viability of MMP if we're just having to rerun this race again? I don't think it does, but it would put pressure on the parties. As I said at the beginning, the parties who were seen to have brought this about would have a lot of explaining to do because while we quite like the sport of elections, as you indicated at the beginning, we get a bit tired of them and the sooner we get them over with the better. The last thing we want is another one in, say, early February. I suspect what would happen, though, would be one way or another, you'd see one of the big blocks emerge with a clearer majority than is likely. Peter Dunn, thank you again. And we've also got a bunch of debates still to come this week. Remember, tonight's finance debate hosted by The Post and the long-awaited press debate that was on again, off again, on again is on Tuesday with the leaders of the minor parties. But we're going to be talking about why a trip to a Sunday buffet in Wales backfired so badly. So what we want to know from you is semi-related, and you'll kind of find out a little bit more later on in the episode, but we want to know if you think it's ever okay to BYO food at a restaurant, like a piece of food to add to your meal. And we're not talking about parents with kids, you can bring the lunchbox, that's fine. We're talking about actual adults bringing an additional piece of food to add to their restaurant meal. You can vote on our Insta poll, find us by searching Newsable NZ. The Middle East is again in crisis. The Prime Minister of Israel has declared his country is at war after a surprise and unprecedented attack by Hamas militants over the weekend. Hundreds are dead and thousands are injured with the casualties on both sides. Here to talk us through how we got here and where to next is the BBC's Middle East editor, Sebastian Usher, joining us from London. Sebastian, those that follow relations between these two countries believed or had it that while tensions had risen recently in the Gaza Strip, neither Hamas nor Israel wanted an escalation. Did anyone see this attack coming? What was it that changed? I mean, those are big questions, and I think they're still very much being studied. I mean, clearly there's been an intelligence failure by Israel, by the Israeli military, by the Israeli government, over not being prepared for this assault, which has taken Israel by surprise, as you say. But this is unprecedented in terms of the past few decades of Palestinian militants, Palestinian fighters entering Israel in large numbers and going to villages, taking hostages. So this has brought Israel and the Palestinians into a new sphere of conflict. And I think all bets are off at the moment. 
World leaders are making statements condemning the attacks. The US Security Council scheduled an emergency meeting. What role, Sebastian, does the rest of the world play here? Generally, what the international community does, it almost kind of puts a countdown, a clock in place as far as Israel's response is concerned. Israel generally knows that it's got a window of opportunity before the condemnation of the wider spectrum of the international community becomes too strong and Israel essentially has to end its operations. I think that may be more open-ended this time because of what Israel is undergoing, what it's facing, the number of deaths, the number of people injured, the hostages that have also been taken. So I think this will be a more complex response the normal kind of rhetoric that's used, and we've we've heard it obviously, the all-out condemnation of what Hamas has done, will be tempered by the sense that the capabilities that Hamas has shown, you know, have taken not just Israel but the world by surprise. And what are you watching for next, Sebastian, in terms of what comes next? Is it a potential ground offensive from Israel? I think that's potentially what's going to happen. I mean, obviously, that's a big risk for Israel. I mean, they found in the most recent conflict with uh, Hamas in Gaza that the Hamas was relatively well prepared for Israel going in. So the Israeli forces did have problems with that. I mean, obviously, the Israeli military is massively stronger in every way than what Hamas has to offer. But it's not something that Israel is going to do feeling that it will get out relatively unscathed. So, I mean, I think if they possibly can, they will still make it, if there is a ground offensive, a limited one. But they have set an objective. And I think this is an objective that uh, the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, you know, needs himself to show that he can do for the Israeli people is to seriously disable Hamas's ability this time. Sebastian Asher, thank you very much for your time and insight. Kia ora, I'm Adam Blair. I played the great game of rugby league for the Storm, Tigers, Broncos and the Mighty Warriors. And I'm Goran Paladin, sports presenter and rugby league fanatic. I won a World Cup too. I played 51 tests for New Zealand. Yeah, he's a national treasure, people. Come on. Larry and I, we're joining forces for a brand new rugby league podcast called League of Our Own. Each week we talk Kiwis across the NRL and of course everything was. All the big names, the big stories. And some of my own stories too. Well, if we can make them fit. We'll make time. Okay. League of Our Own with Larry and Goran. Debut ep dropping on Wednesday afternoon and every Wednesday after that. You can listen through stuff.co.nz or wherever you get your podcast. Proudly brought to you by Snap Rentals. Mate, your, your stories are way too long, eh? Nah, we've got to take them on a journey. <laughs> oh, the journey. Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> the tale of a Welsh buffet and the customer who walked away unhappy is still to come. It is a doozy. But remember, if you never want to miss a yarn, <laughs> as tantalising as that one. As tantalising as they all are. They all are tantalising. Chuck us a like and a follow on your favourite podcast platform. The Black Caps play the Netherlands tonight in their second World Cup match being held in Cricket Mad India. And when we say Cricket Mad, this is an audience of 1.4 billion people who don't just like cricket, they love it. 
Oh, I see what you did there. <laughs> Very smart. Even Bollywood will actually schedule its movie releases around the, the big match day so they don't clash with any cricket. And one Kiwi who has a pretty sharp insight into this is former Black Cap Jeff Allett, who for the past 11 years has been heading up a Kiwi export firm to India called Quality NZ. Kia ora, Jeff. Welcome to Newsable. Now, I wanted to be upfront with this one. Your business partners are the who's who of New Zealand cricket. Dan Vittori... Brendan McCullum, Stephen Fleming, hand on heart, would your business be as successful in India if you guys were not all famous cricketers? Oh, it's been huge, I have to say. Um, you know, the effort, energy, passions, network that they bring has just been phenomenal. And it is, you know, cricket is a religion in India. Um, there's no doubt about that. But the uh, it's those networks and opportunities that have been created by the guys have, have given us a huge leapfrog, no doubt about it. Can you give us an example of that? What sort of doors uh, does the cricket connection open for you and the business over there? Oh, look, I think many of the uh, the franchisees or the franchise owners, I should say, um, of the teams that they've represented in the Indian Premier League, the IPL, hugely successful T20 competition. They're very connected into many facets. So there's links all the way through. Um, there's opportunity. So when you say that you have Stephen Fleming or Brendan McCullum as a brand ambassador, but actually more importantly as a shareholder, mm. um, the credibility that we get with that, with having that conversation, we sort of circumnavigate a whole lot of time because of uh, the impact that they have. What is it about India and cricket and that makes them such a happy marriage? Why is it such a cricket-mad country? Well, you can be in a taxi or a tuk-tuk and they will understand you know, more of the statistics about <laughs> us and our players than what we perhaps have um, even as former players it is incredible so you know the passion is also intergenerational they sit down and they watch they analyze they discuss um, that passion that they have for it just explodes out in a live game the black caps what's your read on how they're going to go in this world cup I think they're going to be successful. I don't want to put too much pressure on them. Um, but, uh, you know, what I like about our team is it's got tremendous balance. Um, the conditions over there will be tough. We know that, but we've we've toured there recently. And um, I think we've got some good spin bowling options, but we've also got game-changing options. No, you can never roll them out. Okay, so the first ball tonight for the Black Caps against the Netherlands is at 9.30. And hey, um, before we let you go, I want to let everyone know the fun fact we found out about you. You had an amazing 99 World Cup, didn't you? Leading wicket-taker for the tournament, 20 wickets equal with Shane Warne. That's amazing. How, did you just feel like a god at the end of that tournament? I was a very average international cricketer, probably a, a decent club uh, club cricketer at best. And so to go over there and play against my idols and have a result like that and, and equal the record with Shane Warne, you know, an idol really in many ways, was just surreal. So I actually thought you were going to bring up my world record test duck. So uh, normally that's the one that they choose. So thank you for not doing that. You did it to yourself. <laughs> you didn't have to bring it up, Jeff. You didn't have to bring it up. <laughs> Thanks for playing the game, Jeff. Great to have you. Thank you. Demo, personal question. Are you partial to a buffet? I am, but I also panic at the old buffet because I just want everything. And I then have this completely irrational fear that things are going to run out unless I pack them all onto my plate. Even though buffets are catering usually for like hundreds of people, I still worry that if I don't get it now, it's going to be gone when I go for second plate. So I load plate up, I go hundies, and then I end up with this plate of very uncomplimentary items mm -hmm. and then it doesn't taste yummy so then I barely eat it 
I'm the exact same. Like plate one is this kind of Jenga tower of all these different cuisines you could have. It's a real like battle between your FOMO and your self-control and FOMO always wins. FOMO always wins and (laughs) self-control loses every time. Every time. The reason why I bring this up, of course, is because one woman who went to a pub in Swansea, Wales, your spiritual homeland, Mm -hmm. tried to outsmart the local pub's buffet and it backfired big time. So it's been best subbed up by her TripAdvisor review, two stars. She writes that food was lovely and the service was good. So where did things go so far south? Well, she says she was very unhappy. They were unable to take their leftover food home with them on a plate that they bought with them from home. Why did she bring her own plate? Again, we just we need to go back to this TripAdvisor review for the information. She writes that they said on the menu that they don't do takeaway boxes, which is fine. So I had a plate which I brought with me and it was still a no. Good food, but this is a letdown. I won't be going back. Just a heads up to anyone who might like to take food home with them. I just don't understand. I would never see that written on a menu and think that's fine. I'll bring my own plate. Exactly right. Like it's okay. Also, to... if you're gonna do that Tupperware box, surely not plate. <laughs> Secret no. Tupperware box you can put in your bag. If you can, you can sneak a couple of croissants from the breakfast buffet into your bag. Every... I think that's fine. But you literally have to walk out. Yes, with this plate of mashed potato or whatever she had on it to put it in your car. But also, I think that's like pretty standard. You don't take away from a buffet. Semi-related here. When I worked in hospo, I remember a lady once coming for brekkie with her mates. She bought her own avo to have with her eggies. Like she orders her eggs and then out comes the Tupperware and half an avo, boom. What did you do? Well, I was a little bit shocked. Understandably. I didn't really know what to do. And we were also really busy that morning. So I knew I had way bigger fish to fry right then, right there. Table nine needs cutlery. Table 21's had a spillage. There's a child running around. The cyclists, once again, have changed all the outdoor furniture. And I did not have the time... Or mental capacity to start an argument with a woman over half an avocado. That is fair enough, but that passion (laughs) is why we want to hear from you guys if you ever think it's okay to add your food to your lunch. Look, maybe she was trying to save for a house. Isn't that why we can't buy houses? Because we have avocado on our breakfasts. I just don't think do it. (laughs) Vote on our Instagram poll. That's usable for today. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll catch you tomorrow. I'm Jess McCarthy. And I'm Imogen Wells. Have a fabulous Monday. If you like this podcast, please support our work. Visit stuff.co.nz support. If you don't have time to read the in-depth stories or you just prefer to listen instead, The Long Read From Stuff is the podcast for you. Each week we showcase one of our excellent pieces of journalism, telling important or entertaining stories from the world of crime, sport, history, culture and more. You also get to hear from the journalists themselves about how they uncovered the story and how it came to life. So for your weekly dose of long-form journalism, beautifully read, subscribe to The Long Read From Stuff wherever you get your podcasts.